Welcome to Tech Writer Voices. I'm Tom Johnson, and I'm your host today, talking with Sarah O'Keefe about single sourcing. You'll notice that single sourcing was the subject of a previous podcast, but it is definitely one of the hottest topics in technical writing, in my opinion. And the interview that I did with Neil Perlin had a lot of downloads, so it was a very popular topic. I thought I would interview Sarah O'Keefe, who is a very well-known consultant on the same subject. Her perspective is a little different, and she provides some really interesting advice and commentary on this subject. Can you tell us a little bit where you're located and, and what your professional interests are? Sure. I'm located in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, or that is where our office is. And I run a company called Scriptorium Publishing here. We are a publishing consultancy, so we specialize in working with technical writers and other content creators to create efficient publishing workflows. We also have some books and training materials and various other things, and we work mostly with tech writers. How would you define single sourcing? Single sourcing is a workflow in which content is reused. So if you're generating printed and online documents from a single set of files, that would be single sourcing. Uh, creating user-level and administrator-level help from a single set of files is also single sourcing. My, my smallest definition of it is that it is automated reuse. And what would be some of the major benefits that users can reap from turning to a single sourcing model? Instead of writing the same content over and over again, you write once and deliver many times. The result of that is that you reduce the total number of topics or pages that you have to maintain. The result of that is that you have a more efficient workflow, you have fewer errors because you're maintaining less stuff, you have a lower maintenance load, and perhaps most importantly for those people that do it, lower localization and translation costs. Now, a lot of people talk about single sourcing as the kind of holy grail of of technical writing, uh, a sort of ideal that people can dream about, but it's very difficult to achieve. So can you be real practical for the listeners about this, the specific steps one might take to actually begin to single source their content? Well, unfortunately, I think I have to start with the all-purpose consultant answer, which is it depends. It depends on that writing environment, what kind of content you're creating, and what you're trying to accomplish. So what I would typically do in looking at an organization is look at the content and understand how and where you're reusing information. Are you copying and pasting from one application to another? Are you doing reformatting, handwork to produce both printed and online documentation, those types of things? Or maybe you have a situation where you have two copies of a help system in order to accommodate variations in your audience or in your product that you're delivering. You need to look at those content reuse requirements. If you need to reuse information and you're currently reusing by copying and pasting, then you really want to take a look at single sourcing. If single sourcing makes sense for your content, then you have to start thinking about how to actually get there, and that's when you start thinking about tool sets. But the foundation of all of this is this question of, do I need to reuse content? And if I need to reuse content, what's the most efficient way of doing that? And is that most efficient way worth the cost and the effort that it will take to get there? So in other words, if, yes, I could reuse, but I'm only doing it for 5% of my content, and it's really not that big a deal to copy and paste it over, then you might choose not to single source because it's just more effort than it's worth. 
we had a documentation show and tell sort of meeting at, at our cha- last chapter meeting where a lot of different writers brought their documentation to to share it and and to see how other people were were doing their writing. And one thing I noticed is that a lot of people used RoboHelp to create online help, and they also had a, a sort of PDF version of somewhat the same um, of the online help. And I asked each of them how they went from RoboHelp to PDF or or vice versa, and not one of them really had a a solution that was automated. Can you talk a little bit about what these these sorts of people can do to automate that? I'm talking about medium reuse, not heavy reusers, but smaller sort of companies that generate a lot of online help and, and also want to have the same content in PDF. If you have a scenario where you have a requirement to deliver online help and also deliver the same information in print slash PDF, then that clearly qualifies as a situation where you may want to take a look at single sourcing. RoboHelp does actually provide some support for doing this, but unfortunately their support isn't very good. So when you try to, uh, what you want to get to is push a button. So when you try to push the button and output your content from RoboHelp or from your online help format into your print format, what you end up with is some stuff that's not very good, and then you end up going in there and spending a lot of time cleaning it up. For that type of a scenario uh, where people are using RoboHelp, have little or no automation, and are doing a lot of manual reworking, there are basically two workflows, or actually, sorry, three workflows and three tools that they need to look at. One is moving to Flare, which has much better support for print single source output than RoboHelp does. One is moving to AuthorIt, which is really more of a low-end content management solution, but is appropriate for a group of a dozen or fewer and could potentially be very useful to them. And the third option is to look at moving to either FrameMaker or Word with a WebWorks publisher, ePublisher Pro backend. What about larger companies? Let's say maybe an airline regulation sort of project or a car manufacturer that does have a heavy amount of reuse. What sort of solutions would you suggest for them? Well, airlines and cars are interesting examples because in most cases, uh, in most cases, first of all, they have already moved to either SGML or XML because of regulatory requirements. If you look at the aerospace industry, they were one of the earliest adopters of SGML, which was the precursor to XML, so of structured writing and a structured approach to content. When you are Boeing or Airbus, you have hundreds and hundreds of smaller suppliers that deliver content to you that becomes a component then of the airplane that you're dealing with. So in other words, as Boeing, I might have a supplier that produces seats, and I have a supplier that produces the emergency exit door, and I have a supplier that produces the the wiring system that goes into the plane, and this goes on for hundreds of vendors, if not thousands. As a result, a Boeing or an Airbus made some rules about how that content needs to be delivered to them. And so in that particular case, what's going to happen, if you're a supplier within that industry, you are simply going to have to match whatever requirements Boeing or Airbus or whoever the larger upstream company is. uh, You're going to have to match whatever requirements they have established for you. Um, That typically means either SGML or XML, and that means you need something really pretty complicated and expensive to get there. 
All right, you, you mentioned in your previous response uh, Flare and AuthorIt and, and FrameMaker with WebWorks Publisher Pro. Um, I was wondering if you could compare Flare with AuthorIt a little bit more, um, just kind of compare and contrast the two and, and which do you think works better in, in what situations? Flare and AuthorIt are both, um, well, I, sh I should first tell you that this is not my primary ex area of expertise. So I do know a little bit about these tools, but I'm not an expert on them. Basically, AuthorIt is stronger on the content management side of things, and Flare is stronger on the more traditional help authoring side of things. So if you think of Flare as being a successor or a new updated version of RoboHelp, that's a relatively fair comparison. AuthorIt is really pretty unique. Uh, AuthorIt allows you to store and reuse your content and then um, do some push-button generation of different kinds of versions. Um, Flare will do things kind of along those lines, but it's really not designed for that from the ground up. So the people that tend to move into author it tend to be the people that have very, very heavy content reuse requirements in smaller groups. And the people that tend to move into Flare tend to be people who are looking for a help authoring tool with some other things as well. So there's a difference in focus. So your specialization is, is more with FrameMaker. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that works with WebWorks Publisher Pro? I've been using FrameMaker for, oh, I don't know, at least 10 years. And we tend to be more focused on FrameMaker and these days on XML. Uh, we spend a long time doing a lot of FrameMaker work. And these days, some large percentage of our customers are also doing XML. The way FrameMaker and WebWorks Publisher or ePublisher Pro work together is that you create your content in FrameMaker. And the key in FrameMaker in any project is to be very consistent about using a template, about having paragraphs and character tags, and about applying those consistently and labeling your content in such a way that you can identify what something is accurately. So in other words, you would use heading one and heading two and body and bullet and all those different kinds of tags rather than, for example, the infamous normal with fonts applied just sort of at random. Now, if in FrameMaker you have a consistently tagged file that uses paragraph and character tags, and for that matter, FrameMaker gives you some other things like table tags, if you have those things with minimal or no overrides, what you can then do is map those tags across to what they need to become in your online help output. And that's what WebWorks Publisher allows you to do. So for instance, you take your heading one and your heading two tags, and you say, anytime you run across a heading one or a heading two, I want you to create a new topic. So you break up your document into topics based on where the headings occur. That implies, of course, that your document has to use headings consistently. You can then control the formatting and the output of your help set and where that goes by um, modifying things in the WebWorks Publisher project. So one thing that people are always very concerned about is that on the print side, they might have cross-references that say, see thus and such on page 47. And while well, I don't want the page number in my online output. But WebWorks allows you to quite easily strip off the page number. So in the print version, it might say, see heading thus and such on page thus and such. And in the online output, it simply says, see heading thus and such. And the page piece is stripped off automatically. 
you also can have a different set of fonts in your print output than in your online help output, as you probably want. So you have complete control over the appearance of both your print and your online. They don't have to necessarily match, but they will be they will have the same content in them and be organized the same way. Tell me some of the pitfalls that writers run into when they attempt to single source their content. There are technology challenges and and it's really easy to focus on those issues to say, well, WebWorks is difficult to use or poorly documented or uh, it's hard to build a template in FrameMaker, those types of things. Um, and of course, there are equivalent issues or challenges that you see in Flayer or Authorit or anywhere else. The most serious problem, though, that you run into when you try to implement single sourcing is, is a very human problem. People, people do not like change. And single sourcing is a big change, and very often there is resistance to it within a writing group. A lot of writers say, well, I already know how to, how to write. I know how to work within the tool set that I currently have, and I don't want a new tool set. I want to stay with what I, what I know and what I'm comfortable with. And that is what I've found to be actually the biggest challenge in implementing any sort of new workflow. Well, what exactly do you do to help people who are averse to change sort of embrace a new tool and a new method? It depends. Uh, that's always the answer. It depends on the reasons for, for change resistance. So there, there are a couple of things to look at. One is that it is important to make sure that people have education and training. And, of course, coming from a consultant and a trainer, that's what you expect to hear. But it is not fair to hand a writer a new tool and say, here is your new tool set. Here is the template you are supposed to be using. By the way, your document is still due next week. And that happens, of course, all the time. So there is an implementation challenge that the management or the leadership that is putting in these new tool sets needs to look very carefully at when will this be rolled out. What we like to do, ideally, is you author along in whatever you're currently using, and then you have a release. And when that release walks out the door, then we say, okay, now you have six months before the next release, so we're going to implement the new tool set, do the training, give you some time to get up and running, understand that your productivity will be diminished while you're learning, and then six months from now, you'll have another release. It is not nice, and it has happened. It is not nice to tell people, here's the new tool, get it done by next week. It happens all the time, and it is not fair. So that's one issue, is the change resistance due to deadline pressure. That's really not an unreasonable thing to say for a writer. Uh, there is change resistance due to this template does not accommodate my requirements. It does not do what I need it to do. Now, in that case, we have to look at the question of when, when you say I need this feature that you are not giving me, and of course now I've told you you should not use overrides, so you can't just go in there and do stuff. We have to look at the question of is that a legitimate requirement or is this something that it's a nice to have but it really doesn't need to be there. If a writer comes and says, you know, I don't like these new tools because they don't do X, Y, and Z, then there are really two possibilities. One is that the tool set was not designed to support what the writer needs to do, in which case we have delivered a bad tool set. In that case, the implementers need to go back and clean up the templates and support the things that that writer is asking for. The second option 
And this is what I like to refer to as uh, Ed's Green Bullet. So there's a writer named Ed, and Ed decided a long time ago that he did not like the plain, vanilla, boring, uh, black, round bullets. So Ed made himself a special style called Ed's Special Bullet, which results in a green diamond bullet. Okay, green diamond bullets and the implementation of green diamond bullets are not a valuable use of anybody's time, including Ed's. So that is a case where you have to go back to Ed and say, look, this this is just not worth it. You are going to have to use black round bullets, and this is what you're going to need to do. So there can be change resistance due to the template not matching up to what the writer wants to do, and some of the time that is due to missing features which need to be added, and some of the time it's due to personal preference which needs to be addressed but not added to the template. It needs to be addressed in terms of, I'm sorry, but we are not going to do this anymore because, of course, we'll have Ed's green bullet and we'll have Tom's purple bullet and we'll have Sarah's yellow bullet and this is just not a good thing. Um, Other change resistance issues, there's fear, fear of change and fear of new things that I don't know how to use. So as a writer... I've now spent some time mastering a particular set of tools and I now know how to use those and I'm comfortable within them and I'm not really in the mood to go off and learn something new just because my management said so. Uh, There are a couple of different ways of dealing with that, but perhaps the easiest one is to say that as a writer, as a technical writer, it is our job to learn new things and so a lot of people get into this based on curiosity. Um, But the other factor is that it is always a good idea to learn new tools because it makes you more marketable. So even if you're not happy about the direction that your particular current organization, employer, or customer is going to, in the long term, it's really a very good idea to learn about single sourcing or to learn FrameMaker or to learn about XML because that will give you another tool to put on your resume and that will make you more marketable down the road so that you can appeal to self-interest in that case. You mentioned the training and the the learning adjustment. As far as the business model for single sourcing goes, can can people feel confident that that their company will save money by switching to single sourcing, or is it only a benefit that's realized in the long term? People in general, no. In general, no. You cannot feel confident that everybody will save money switching to single sourcing. It is certainly possible that single sourcing will save money in a particular environment with particular reuse requirements. I really recommend against implementing single sourcing, or for that matter, anything else, unless you can show that it will save you money in your particular set of circumstances. So you can you can look at this. The easiest way to do it is to look at how much money you might save by looking at what tasks you'll eliminate. So let's say you have a book and you spend a week at the end of every release converting your help content into print. You know, this RoboHelp into PDF example. So if hypothetically it takes you 40 hours to do this, that's really a small amount of time. That's really probably not worth the effort of implementing single sourcing. But let's say you have five books, and each one takes a week to convert, and you release twice a year. Well, now you're talking about five books times 40 hours uh, times twice a year. That's about 400 hours of work. And if you assume that a writer costs $50 an hour, which I use only because it's a nice round number and and math is an issue for me, so now all of a sudden we have 400 hours times $50 an hour, that's $20,000. And that's a cost that's being repeated every year. 
Single sourcing, on the other hand, means that you're going to have upfront costs in planning and implementation and maybe some tools costs, but these recurring conversion costs that you have over and over and over again are eliminated. So you look at upfront cost versus recurring cost. You can also do a similar analysis to compare the cost of reusing a chunk of information against the cost of writing it twice or the cost of laboriously copying and pasting and reformatting from place to place. So if you have a significant amount of content overlap among your various deliverables, then there's really no question that single sourcing is more efficient. And the question then becomes, what is the cost of implementing single sourcing? And what are the cost savings that you realize by doing that? And which number is bigger? Sarah, can you tell me some resources that people can use to try to learn more about single sourcing? And, and can you also describe more Scriptorium and, and your company blog? Um, so Scriptorium is a publishing consultancy. Uh, I got into this business about 10 years ago. We actually have our official 10-year anniversary coming up in January. And our job, as I see it, is to help technical writers and other content creators solve publishing problems. In many cases, they come to us because they need to implement something like single sourcing or they need to implement XML these days. And we will typically do that using whatever tools and technologies are the most appropriate for those customers. Uh, there are certain tools that we focused on because we feel as though those are typically provide better answers for our particular customers. Um, but we will, we will recommend and we will implement whatever it is that, that they need. Uh, the company you can find at scriptorium.com, S-C-R-I-P-T-O-R-I-U-M. And I would suggest that you start there for resources. If you go to our resources page, you'll find a pretty large number of white papers and downloadable information, conference presentations that I've done, that type of thing. And then from there, there are, of course, numerous resources out there on the web, um, but Oh, and one that comes to mind is Char James Tanney's Help Matrix. She has this excellent, excellent uh, table that allows you to compare and contrast across different help authoring tools. That lives at uh, helpstuff.com. So definitely swing by and see Char's stuff. Now, coming back to our website, so there are some white papers floating around out there. Those are all free. We also have a significant amount of additional content that you can get uh, you mentioned the blog. I've been doing that for, I think, about a year and a half now. And I post with uh, questionable regularity, I'd have to say. Uh, some weeks it's every day, and sometimes it's once a week. But I do try and keep that up to date and keep an eye on the interesting things that are happening right now. Uh, by the way, I don't know if anybody has mentioned this in any of your podcasts, but Adobe has announced that there is a beta for RoboHelp available and that you can contact them directly to sign up for it. I've got the link for that. I posted it on my blog about a week ago. So if you go to our blog page, uh, which is linked off the front page of our website, you can find it from there. So for those listeners that are interested in RoboHelp and looking at the next version of RoboHelp, that might be something to take a look at. We've also started doing... Uh, we, do, we offer training at our site, and of course we love to have people come see us, one of the big problems with that is it's quite expensive, especially by the time you factor in travel. So in addition to uh, public training, we also offer private training, which is cost-effective for larger groups, but we've started adding some less expensive alternatives. 
Um, we have web-based training, which is live and instructor-led, which, of course, cuts out your travel issues. We have something called track access, which are 60 to 90-minute web-based seminars that are intended to provide people with an alternative to attending a conference. So I'm delivering the same content that I might have at a conference presentation over the web, which, and then the cost for those is, is pretty minimal. So it allows you, instead of having to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to go to a conference, you can at least get my conference presentation for um, live for next to nothing. We are probably also going to start recording those and delivering those uh, as canned presentations, but we haven't done that yet. And there was one other thing, but it escapes me now. So if you get a chance, poke around our website. There's lots and lots of stuff there. And we also have a significant number of links to other resources that are out there in the world. And if people want to write you directly, can you tell them what your email is? My email address is O'Keefe, O-K-E-E-F-E, at scriptorium.com. You can also send email to info at scriptorium.com. There are, I believe there's a direct link from the blog, and my contact information is actually also on our website, um, and there's a link there. Well, thanks, Sarah. Those are about all the questions I I had for you. Do you have any more information Mm -hmm. you want to add to anything I didn't ask? Well, I'd like to add that single sourcing is an interesting question. Um, Many of our customers at this point have been doing single sourcing, typically with FrameMaker and WebWorks, for really quite a long time. And what they're looking at now is moving up to XML. That is probably a separate conversation. But I did want to mention that single sourcing and, and, and more so XML require writers to become better writers. There are things that you can get away with in a book that when you try and move it on into an online environment suddenly becomes a glaring problem or error. And so it is a, it is a great challenge to us as writers to produce content that is reusable and that is interesting and accurate and, and all the rest of that, of course. But I think that this challenge of moving into single sourcing and reusing workflows is really the number one thing that will be faced as technical writers in the next, say, five years. And I look forward to seeing all the neat things that people come up with. Actually, I was wondering if I could just add one more question to that point you brought up. A lot of people mm-hmm. tell me when I when I talk to them about single sourcing, they say, well, people read differently in print than they do online, and so you could single source it, but then it wouldn't be very good in, in the other medium. Um, and single sourcing requires a more of a conceptual shift about how people write. Um, can you just touch upon that sort of shift and how people have to write differently when they start single sourcing their content? People have to write better when they start single sourcing their content. Let me give you a couple of not great examples. In a book, you can write along and you can say things like, you know, as I explained in Chapter 1 this, that, and the other thing. You're now in Chapter 7. And you make the assumption that people read Chapter 1 before they read Chapter 7, and you can sort of build on what's in Chapter 1. That doesn't work in an online environment because you have really no control about which point they they drop into your help system. You know, they go to the table of contents, they navigate around, they go, to ch- they go somewhere. 
So what typically the advice is, instead of saying, as discussed previously, you provide a link. Before you begin this configuration step, be sure that you understand database concepts, and there will be a link there. Now, going back to the book for a second, people don't read books from cover to cover, not technical books. Novels, yes, but not technical books. So this argument that I can build my document from chapter 1 to chapter 7, and in chapter 7 I can refer them back to chapter 1 because they read it. They didn't read it. They went to the index. They found an entry for the thing they're interested in, and they jumped straight to chapter 7. So even in a book, it is probably a good idea to say, please read chapter 1 before you, you know, work your way through this, not to assume that they read chapter 1. And so the argument that I hear over and over again is that books are consumed as a whole and online help systems are consumed as topics. Now, with I only know one person in my entire life who reads books, technical books, from cover to cover, and that's my father-in-law. He sits down, he reads the whole thing, he tries out every feature, and he goes from page one to page 200. He is the only person I know that does this. Everybody else, and if you think about how you consume technical books, if you're trying to look something up and understand something technical, 50% of everybody looks in the table of contents, 50% look in the index, and then there's my father-in-law. Okay? But basically, it's a 50-50 breakdown. People look for the thing they want to look up, and then they go and they read that one little chunk of information about that thing. That means that it's important for a book and for online help for that one thing to be um, coherent and to stand on its own as a section or as a topic. That means that if you're delivering topics, if you're delivering modular information, then it becomes really quite easy to repurpose that content into both print and online. Um, I have to say that there are certain kinds of things that probably do not make sense to be broken down into online help. And, and a white paper is probably a good example of that. If you have a white paper that's 15 pages long and provides a conceptual overview of one particular kind of subject matter, that white paper needs to stand as it's on its own. But most of the time, when we're talking about documentation, when we're talking about software documentation or policies and procedures, they break down into individual, you know, one procedure or one policy, which may have component sub-procedures. But they break down pretty easily into chunks, how to do a particular thing in your software, how to register for your 401k with HR, that kind of thing. That type of information can be delivered in both print and online very, very well. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you talking to me and for all the excellent information and advice you've given to the listeners today. If you'd like to find out more about Sarah O'Keefe's company and her services, check out scriptorium.com. And there are links to the other resources she mentioned in the show notes. Now, if you remember from last time, I said that there is a new feature that we have, and that is a Skype e-voicemail. You're welcome to call this number, 727-493-2139, and leave a message, an audio comment about the show. Last time, I made that invitation, and somebody actually did comment. So I'm going to play that comment. This is on John McGee's Indexing podcast. I'll play that comment just so that you can get a feel for what's possible. 
Tom. My name is Craig. I'm in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I've just finished listening to the podcast on indexing, and it's your suggestion. I'm calling to let you know what I think. What I think is that that material was so deep that I'll have to listen to it more than once just to figure out everything, all the nuggets that are worth gleaning from it. And I listen to a lot of podcasts from a lot of different resources for a lot of different reasons. Very seldom but is there anything that is so thorough and interesting that it requires me to listen to it more than once. But that should definitely be a repeat performer for me. As far as the question regarding great issues that technical writers face, I am not ready to answer that because the more I think about it, the more it gets a little crazy in my mind. Anyway, keep up the good work. I think the podcast uh, is an excellent resource, and I hope that more technical writers will get wind of this through STCs or through the Yahoo groups. And um, I look forward to the future podcasts that you produce. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye-bye. So again, that number, if you want to call and leave an audio comment, is 727-493-2139. And there's a link to that on the website, which is at techwritervoices.com. I encourage you to subscribe via email to receive notification of new posts. You can do that right on the site. In the upper right corner, there's a box where you enter your email address. When new posts are added, you'll get a little notification in your inbox. And as the caller Craig mentioned, the question I asked that was kind of difficult to answer is what are the most pressing issues technical writers face? This is a question that Alistair Christie in his podcast asked me and if you think you've got a good answer to this give me a call and let me know and I will play your comment on the quote air so to speak on the podcast air and so that others can can listen now one thing I just want to add before I close is how global this is becoming John McGee is from Australia the commenter was from Calgary I'm in Florida and I had just interviewed Sarah in North Carolina. So this global network of technical writers really is an amazing sort of thing, how it's all coming together. And the geographic boundaries that separated us it, are not so disconnecting anymore.